place. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Amen. Great singing, church. Nothing like praising God and singing at the top of our lungs. He is the way maker. So great. Well, if you have your Bible, please take it out and turn to the book of Ephesians. We're in our series called Beloved Identity, and this this series has been awesome. We have seen who we are, we're seeing who God is, and we're seeing how it changes us, how it changes everything around us. And I would say, if you want to sum that up, a nice little phrase that kind of encapsulates what we've been seeing so far is your belief drives your identity. What you believe about yourself, what you believe about God, that drives the identity of who you think you are. How many in here ever people watch? Anybody? Anybody do this funny little game called people watching? Oh, yeah, way more than I thought. I love that. Uh, it's so great. Uh, Julie and I love to people watch. I mean, especially when we'll go to, like, you know, the airport or we go to a nice restaurant downtown. We people watch. And we play this game where... Uh, I know this is this is a little bit revealing, but like we play this game where we'll 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 just throw out a occupation. I I see a, um, a a retired hedge fund manager, and then like we have to like spot the retired hedge fund manager. Or you know we're we're joking around sometimes. I mean actually the more specific you get and stereotypical you get, like the more fun this game really is. Like I see a wannabe marine zoo, zoo biologist or. You know, you just just go just making up stuff, and and it's really fun to see what people look like, cause that tells you something about their identity, but it definitely doesn't tell you everything about their identity. There's a lot going on beneath the surface, and if you really break it down and you stop to think about even your own identity, like let's just move on from in general other people, but yourself, and personalize this a little bit. There's really three big ways that people kind of live out their identity. And I, I mean, this is a simplification, but it, it's three general categories. And the first one is you shape your identity around who you think you are. Like, this is who I think I am, and I'm going to build my identity around that. Another way that people do this, they hold up their identity around how others view who they are. And then the last way is you develop your identity through the desire of what you want other people to see you as, who you want to be in relation to this someone else. This is kind of how this works out. So if it's all about this is who I am, this is me, you're kind of one of those people who promote themselves and get themselves out there, and you're, you're confident, you're sure of yourself. Uh, sometimes, though, if you think you're hot stuff, you will act in a way where you see yourself as more important than other people. Maybe you expect royal treatment. Maybe you feel entitled to certain privileges. There's a lot of talented, really successful people in this world who live that identity out. That's really kind of what drives their identity. If you're ultra concerned with how others view you, and that's kind of what's, what's dominating your identity, just like, oh, what do they think? What does she think? And a lot of times, that type of person is going to be paranoid. And they're constantly worried about measuring up, and maybe this person doesn't really value me. Um, and to a certain extent, we all do this, but this can be really a problem if it runs rampant and it gets out of control. 
Um, if it's all about what does that person think about me, that's when anxiety kicks in. This can even lead to depression. That's no way to live. And then the last one, you live your life based around what you want to be. You maybe look at somebody who's successful and you like posture yourself towards them and you try to just be like that person. Then you're just keeping up with the Joneses and a lot of these people are successful. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, you're not content because you're not really being true to yourself. You see what I'm saying? There's like these three different angles. Now, we're going to get to the text in a minute, but even if you've been here every single week in this Beloved Identity series, you need to get what's about to happen in Ephesians chapter 4. Because in Ephesians 4, we're going from this, your beliefs drive your identity, and now we're in this pivotal transition to now your identity drives your actions, okay? Your lifestyle. Rather than spending your life striving for an identity, striving for meaning and purpose and a place to fit in, according to Ephesians, what we've seen so far in Ephesians 1 through 3 is you already have an identity in Christ. If you know Jesus as your Savior, that is who you are. And you already have the security, you already have the peace, you already have all of those other things we just mentioned. So you don't have to strive for that. You just have to become who God has called you to be. And the truth of the matter is, despite what the world wants you to think, the pressure really is off on determining your identity. Your beliefs drive your identity, and now, as we move forward into chapter 4, your identity drives your lifestyle. Look at the first word of chapter 4. I, therefore, so we'll say the second word. That therefore there is really a transitional key word between our theology and our practice. Yes, one through three, we have seen all of the theology. This is who God is. This is how he called you out of darkness. This is now who you are. That's the doctrine piece. And now we're going to actually start adding some do's and don'ts throughout the rest of this book, and we're going to get the lifestyle piece. But it's super important to remember that this doesn't just come up as do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. No, it all hinges on the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ, your beloved identity. And here's where it's very important because there's, there's really a couple ways you can read this. When we go into some do's and don'ts and some specific action points, you can either read the rest of this book, especially chapter four, as, all right, get it together, man. Straighten up, do this right. You got to be patient. You got to be humble. Do it. Do it. What's wrong with you? Can't you do that? Like, what's your problem? There's that way to read it, which is the wrong way to read it. And then there's the other side of reading it, which is, this is who God has made me to be. This is what he's called me to. And he's going to give me the strength to do it. The word, uh, if you look at that, that first verse, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word worthy, worthy there is the Greek word, the axios. And it's where we get our word axiom. And it really just means balance. There's this balance to life. So it's not like, 
oh, I got to get it together and pull, pull myself up and, and just do right and do this the right way. No, it's not that you, you feel the weight of that and that drives you, the weight of doing right and doing good. It's you see over here the weight of the gospel and the weight of that, the power of that, the glory in that, who God is. That's what drives you. It's subtle, but at the same time, it's a massive difference. So live like who you have become in Christ. That's what we're going to see today. Live like who you have become in Christ. We are driven by love, like we already sang about. And the motivation is from the love of Jesus Christ. It's from his power that strengthens your inner being. When you understand who you are in Jesus Christ, you are then ready to live for Jesus Christ. And we want to work from love, not work for love, because we already have the love. The first question you probably have, though, is, all right, well, what does this look like, David? What does it really look like to live like who you have become in Christ? I know we've talked all about the theology side of it. We got the doctrine side of it. Okay, I got that. Now, as we move forward into the application, sounds wonderful, but what am I actually supposed to do to live out the reality of my beloved identity? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's the first point today. The first point is walk in a manner worthy of your calling. It's not, this isn't a, um, hey, I just think you should do this because it might be a great idea. It's not a suggestion. It's a strong urging to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Not a casual suggestion. It's a, I'm begging you, please do this. And the word walk, don't be confused by this word. This word really means your, in, your entire lifestyle. This this word walk in the Bible all throughout the New Testament, it encapsulates how you think, how you talk, who you listen to, where you go. It's your lifestyle. Make your lifestyle worthy of your calling. And we've seen your calling again, right? The calling was already in the first three chapters. It was you were dead in your sin. You walked as the Gentiles did. All these people in the futility of their mind, you were far from God but God, being rich in mercy. He saved you by his love and by his grace. That's our calling. So just as, as you were saved by God's grace through faith, and it was not of your own, it was his work, and you were created for his workmanship, just like we had nothing to do with that, our lifestyle, our calling now in our lifestyle, doesn't rest in our action and our doing it. It rests in what Jesus has already done for you, the identity that he has already given you. We have to see that this is not about striving. The world says, you know, to live, you have to make yourself who you are. And if you want meaning and value, then you need to make something of yourself and create it and earning it, earn it. Your calling says, no, I didn't do anything. I just believed. I repented and I believed and I turned to God. And I didn't have to actually achieve it or earn it. So if your identity isn't rooted in your performance, then your walk and your lifestyle isn't rooted in your performance either. And it's super important that Christians understand that. Live from your beloved identity 
don't live for a beloved identity. That's what this whole series is about. And here are the what's. As we move forward in the text now, here are the what's. What are the real-life applicational do's? What's the first one you see there in verse 2? With all humility. All right, let's go through some of these. These are really, really good. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, though, as you know, the modern audience here, as Paul wrote this, they didn't even have a word for humility. Do you realize this? In that culture of the world <laughs> at that time, in that place in history, it was all about, hey, if you're powerful, if you're strong, pride is a good thing. Go for it. Lord your supremacy over other people. And you know what? They'll get in line and they'll get behind you and that's fine. However strong and powerful you are, just be that. So when Paul starts and Christians start talking about humility, do you realize this was like a foreign concept to most people? As a matter of fact, the early church and in the Bible is where this word humility came around. This was, there was no original Greek word. They had to pretty much make their own word up. Wouldn't it be amazing if Christians today were so radically different that we had to like make up a word to describe ourselves? Like what if we were so unified? We never talked bad about other Christians on Twitter or Facebook. We just loved other Christians. We didn't judge them. We just radically loved them no matter what they did. And we had this unbelievable bond that the world sees it in all these really different people that won't like stop loving each other. And they had to create a new word because we didn't have a good word for that. That was what was going on right now at this time with the word humility because it was foreign concept to their culture. But Paul is teaching, hey, Christians, this is who we are because of Christ. C.S. Lewis describes humility this way, and this is one of the best ways I've ever really heard described. You've probably heard this quote. It's from the book Mere Christianity. But do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smormy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't that a good definition of what we're going for here? This is still not common. It was unheard of in the Greco-Roman world. It's still misunderstood today. The only definition I've ever heard that really tops that definition of what C.S. Lewis said is from the Bible, okay? So let's see what the Bible says about humility. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you care for other people. You're concerned for other people. It's not just my agenda. It's I, I value you, and I'm going to take an interest in you. This is radically different than the way we're naturally hardwired, but this is what we're called to be in our beloved identity. Pride is the opposite of humility. That's another easy way to kind of check yourself on this. 
I have never seen a church conflict without pride at its root. Rarely do you ever have problems or, or, or people falling out without pride being the case. If you put humility in the equation, problems get resolved. That's just, that's just the truth. Being humble makes you approachable. If I'm more concerned about you, what you're going through, and I, I, I let you know that, you know what? You're going to want to talk to me. If you do that for other people, when you're humble, it leads to unity because people feel like they can be open. They feel like they can be honest and real with each other. And you let your guard down. You form a bond. Humility is such an important piece of our life in Christ. Pride makes us distance ourselves, put other people at arm's length. Humility is the opposite. Instead of demanding your own way, instead of being rigid and inflexible, you care for them and you work around stuff. It's like Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of Philippians 2 as this same passage goes on. It gives us the ultimate example. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's Jesus Christ right there. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones, who was one of my old favorite uh, preachers from the, from the early 1900s, he said this, and, and if you just hear this ripped out of context, it can almost sound weird and off, but let me explain this. But he said, to be humble means you are just finished with yourself altogether. Doesn't mean you hate yourself. This is not the opposite of like self-love. It just means, you know what? I'm not going to make my agenda the main thing. I'm not going to go to a party and say three straight stories about myself and just talk about me all the time. I'm going to take an interest in other people. And if we are a church full of people like that who say, hey, you know what? I don't have to have it my way all the time. I care more about my identity in Christ and how my brothers and sisters are doing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elevate my time with them. Wouldn't that be the kind of church that we'd all want to be a part of? Wouldn't that be a radical way that we as the church can stand out in the world? The next part of walking in a manner worthy of your calling is this word gentleness. Do you see it right there in verse 2? With all humility and gentleness. Uh, this one is an underrated one. I mean, whereas the first one is kind of misunderstood, this one is just underrated. And I've been, as I was preparing this sermon, thinking about this all week, I'm telling you what, I was really convicted by about Thursday at, at gentleness in the home. I didn't do the greatest job of it earlier in the week. But the more I thought about who God is, how gentle he was with me, I started to understand this. And gentleness isn't being a pushover. That's not it at all. It's applying the appropriate amount of force to whatever situation you're in, the appropriate amount. So it's like if you, if you need to remove the, uh, the, the cover off of your iPhone, um, you don't just, give me a hammer, <laughs> bang. Knock that out. There's the cases right off your cell phone now. Fixed it. No, 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 no. How about we apply the appropriate amount of force here? Get like a little delicate tool or whatever you need and like slowly pry that, 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 that cover off, that case off of your phone, right? 
That's gentleness. We don't need to run over people with our opinions. We don't need to force everything they need to hear down their throat at the exact right time, whether they're ready to hear it or not. How do you treat other brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you treat people who don't know Jesus? Are you coming at it with gentleness? The appropriate amount of truth at the appropriate amount of the appropriate time? That's what we're called to do. I mean, we saw gentleness with Jesus Christ even when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Remember what happened there? Judas brought in the Roman soldiers. Peter, Peter's like gung-ho. I mean, I wouldn't describe Peter at the beginning here as a gentle guy. Like, he's not usually, he doesn't strike you as the gentle force, at least before Jesus ascended back into heaven. But what does Peter do? He takes out the sword. Rawr! Like, he probably was going for the neck, and he missed, and he, like, chopped off Malchus's ear. And then Jesus picked up the ear, healed the man, and said, no, Peter, it's not going to go down like this. Right? Jesus could have brought in all the force he wanted. He could have brought in 10,000 angels. But Jesus knew what he had to do. When you know how gentle God is with you, again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, look at who you were before, before salvation, before you were called, before your calling. Um, when you remember that, you can be gentle with others. The original word, if this is the last thing that helps you understand this, the original word kind of has traces of taming a wild animal. That, that animal is just as strong, just as powerful, but you bring it under control. And you may be thinking, well, David, that's great. That sounds so nice. But I tell you what, I live in a fierce work environment. Everyone around me is the opposite of gentle. And if I come in here, Mr. Mealy Mouth, I'm just going to get run over. It's okay. It's the appropriate amount of truth in love. And here's the truth. If other people are being jerks, if other people are being the opposite of being gentle, there is a way to actually make people gentle. It doesn't work foolproof 100% of the time because you can't fully control people, but there is a really good proverb that talks about this, and it says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Remember that. If somebody's just being rough and gruff and they're intense, do you realize if you just calm down, give them a soft answer, that's the best hope you're going to have to calming them down. All right, let's keep rolling here. Patience is the next one. Uh, <laughs> patience, what, are, what is there to say? We know patience. We know what patience is. We just have a really hard time actually achieving patience. The world runs hot all the time, and things are happening now. We've got to get it done, right? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. And again, when you believe that your God, the miracle worker, the way maker, is patient with you, do you believe that? Do you believe God is patient with you? Absolutely. Then we can be patient with others. I know some of us are like, all right, David, I got it. I got it. Just move on, please. Let's quickly move on to the next point. I know, it's hard. Patience is not easy. Here's another one. Bearing with one another in love bearing with one another. I love this word because it kind of like sounds like what it is. You got to bear with one another. All right? Um, I need a volunteer here. Actually, David, do you mind, do you mind just standing up for a second, man? <laughs> yes. I, I, okay, I'm not a very big guy. 
you're, you're way stronger than me because you work outside all the time. But here's an example of, for you to really crystallize this and know what bearing with one another is, it's this right here. It's a big bear hug. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Bear hug, thank you. I, I picked, I didn't want to pick anybody like that's way bigger than me because I can't give bear hugs to that many people. So we're together on that, man. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. But a bear hug, it's like, I'm with you through thick and thin. I know it's not easy right now. I know it's hard right now. But we're going to bear with one another. I'm going to just, we're going to hug this out. I'm with you. I love you no matter what, right? Giving people a big bear hug in your relationship with them, holding on to them and not letting them go, that's what bearing with one another in love is all about. This is the lifestyle of someone who has been called out of darkness into light. These are the attributes of someone who is letting their beloved identity drive their lifestyle. Walking worthy of who God has called you to be is the first way. Here's the second way as we move on through this text. Number two, endeavor to maintain unity. Endeavor to maintain unity. You may see uh, a few different words in your translation. I don't know what your translation is in front of you. Sometimes it's eager to maintain unity. Sometimes it's exert yourself. I like the word endeavor. It's from the King James Version because to me it just describes this idea the best. It's like, doesn't endeavor sound like you're going on an adventure? Like, I'm going on this, like, this, this, this journey that's going to that's gonna be interesting. There's going to be like obstacles come my way, and I'm going to put out effort and make it happen. Endeavor to maintain unity. I mean, if you've been in the church long enough, if you've just been alive long enough, you could probably, you could probably realize this. But unity is not the natural byproduct of living with people for very long. As a matter of fact, if you just do nothing and you just kind of coexist, and you just move on. You know what happens naturally with people who are sinners? Disunity. Disunity is going to happen naturally. But we have to be eager to maintain. We have to endeavor. We have to start bear-hugging some people to maintain unity. It's, it actually takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of effort to kind of think through that and work through that with people. Our relationships are not always easy with people because people are like us, like you and me. We all have problems. We can, we can sometimes not be driven by humility. Sometimes we let that pride creep in, right? And disunity naturally steps in. Our relationships are a little bit like home ownership, if you think of it in this sense. Like, what do you have to do to your home? If you don't maintain your home at all, what happens? Things start breaking. You know, things break down. You got to repair them. I mean, if you never mowed the lawn, if you never, ever changed the wallpaper from the 1980s, like sometimes you just have to strip those ugly things out of the equation and start fresh, right? That's home ownership. That's the same way our relationships with each other have to go. We have to be eager to maintain that unity and work through things together. Eager to maintain means you're looking for reasons to stay together, not looking for reasons to peace out. I mean, you know, that's what, that's what life is like sometimes, right? Somebody says something to you, and you're like, all right, done with them. Writing that person off. That's not eager to maintain unity. 
It means we strive for peace. We're going after peace. We care more about that than we do our own preferences. And don't you love how Paul doesn't sugarcoat this? I mean, he's writing this letter to the church. He knows it. In the church, you're going to have to be eager to maintain this. Sometimes you're going to have to go on this endeavor. You're going to have to be, you're going to have to be careful about this. Be patient. Bear with one another. Jesus said in John 13, Just as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. And I mean, I have so many examples of this that, have, that come to mind. I want to be careful here. Like, I don't want to like give you any too much detail because I've had, but I've had relationships with people in the church and they really get under my skin. You're like, why do you have to be that way? Oh, it's hard. I know you probably have some instances coming to your mind too. It's not always easy to do this. Paul knows this is going to be an ongoing thing. Sometimes you just got to bear hug it out. And that's why this is such a great example of really the whole, the whole concept of walking worthy in the manner to which he has called you. Like, it's not easy. Sometimes you have to endeavor to maintain unity and you have to bear hug it out. If we're ever going to make this lifestyle a part of your identity, again, who do you have to look to? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Because that's the ultimate example of sacrificially giving up his rights, his position for someone else. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. You got to get this, Doxa Church. Our greatest threat, our greatest threat isn't necessarily Satan, the world out there. Most likely, if there's going to be problems, if there's going to be contention, it's going to be coming from within. Look again at verses 3 through 6 here. That's where this point comes from. Eager to maintain unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Do you see here that unity in the church isn't the fact that we have it all together? It's not based on that. Because we don't have it all together. Our unity is based on the fact that none of us have it all together. But God saved us. We have a common bond. This common bond of peace is our salvation. And that's the source of our unity. The thing that unites all of us is our need for mercy and grace. So we have to take the masks off and be done with the posturing and the posing. We have to go back to, this is what Jesus did for me. This is what Jesus did for you. We have one God, we have one Lord, we have one baptism, and that's where our unity comes. We have to go beyond the kumbaya sort of unity that feels good around the campfire when it's going great. It goes beyond that. God intends for us to be different individually, but unified collectively. That's who our God is. Has anyone ever seen the sequoia trees in California? Anyone ever seen them? A few of you nodding your heads, yeah. I have never personally seen these. 
um, only seen pictures and heard really awesome things about them. But the California sequoias are incredible because they grow up to 300 feet tall. And you would think, oh, wow, what if there was a really, really huge windstorm? Like, they must have really, really deep roots, right? Well, as a matter of fact, they don't. These trees that grow up to 300 feet tall, their roots only gr grow like 12 to 14 feet deep into the ground. Isn't that, cra isn't that just crazy? Like, what? How, how on earth are these trees so powerful, so heavy, if their roots only go 14 feet into the ground? Well, the reason is because the sequoia roots, they actually intertwine with each other. So you have this patch of sequoia trees. These roots aren't that deep in the ground, but they're all completely meshed in and connected and intertwined to the point that if a storm comes, it has to take out 500 sequoia trees because you can't just blow over one because it's all intertwined together. In the same way, we need to intertwine our lives and commit to one another in love. So the storm can't just take one of us out. If one of us is struggling, we got people around us who are there to help us and guide us and bring us back. That's eager to maintain unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is where it gets really interesting. If you want to hear a shocking statement, I would dare say only Christians understand true unity. Only, just like to really truly love someone, you have to know God, you have to know Jesus Christ. I believe to really have eternal unity, to really get this, you have to know God. Why? Because true unity comes from the Trinity. Did you see that in the text? Look at that slide. You know, one spirit, that's in verse 4. That's in verse 4. One Lord, that's in verse 5. One Father, that's verse 6. Unity comes and it's rooted in the triune God who existed in unity in relationship with himself before he even created this world. Which is why it's so sad when we as Christians don't live in unity. We have to be the family that works through things together. You don't let a fa you, you know, you understand when a family member is messing up, you're going you're gonna to be there for them. You're going to love them. It's the same thing in the church. We make mistakes and we don't give up on each other. So let's get really specific for a second. How do you practically do this and live in unity and community with each other as a church? A couple, a couple ways. I'm just going to throw these out at you. Um, one way is to join the church. Just become a member. Like, make that commitment. Say, hey, I value this church. I believe in the mission of this church, and I'm going to commit myself to loving and serving other Christians. I'm going to be that flag bearer. I'm going to be that problem solver who says, I'm going to invest in you. Another way you would do this, obviously, is, is through life groups. To endeavor to maintain unity in the bond of peace, you're going to be a member who says, I'm going to faithfully attend, I'm going to give, I'm going to serve, I'm going to pray for this church. I'm going to be a part of a life group means I'm going to invest in having relationships with people. We're going to pray with each other. We're going, to, we're going to apply God's word together. We're going to do life together. That does it. I know some people can't be a part of a life group just because of your work schedule. We don't even have as many life groups as, as we need to have. We're going to be getting some more soon. But maybe you can't make life group consistently because of just life. You can still, have, you can still be on a serve team. 
You can, you can do facilities. You can work in kids. And I mean, there's bonds that can come. It, it's not hard to get connected in this church. It's all you have to say is, I'm going to give up some of my time, and I'm going to value that, and I'm going to put a priority on that, even when I don't feel like it, because I know I need it. That is having unity and eager to maintain unity. Live like who you have become in Christ. I heard a pastor once talk about this. Um, oh, yeah, this is a good one, too. Unity started with Christ, and in unity, the church starts with you living like who you have become in Christ. Uh, but this pastor I heard say this once. He actually was a pastor of a big church, and he was at the grocery store, and there was a guy come. He came up to him and said, hey, I just wanted you to know, like, I've been coming to your church for the last few weeks, but uh, I've been coming, I think we said about a couple months, but I, I'm not going to stick around. I couldn't find any community. I just couldn't get, couldn't get it at your church. And this pastor was more of the bold type of guy, and he, he said, well, hey, let me ask you a couple questions. I'm sorry to hear that. But uh, did, you, did you ever go to a life group? No, no, I didn't. Did, did, you ever, uh, did you ever serve anywhere? No, I didn't. Did you ever give? He's like, what are you talking about? That's a personal question. He's like, and, the, and the pastor says to him, well, hey, look, man, if, if you help pay the bills and you do the chores, it's your home. But if you don't do those things, it's not going to be your own home. And I, I hope he said that in a gentle way. <laughs> you know, you could easily say that in a very offensive way. Um, and I mean, it's not completely correct, but at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that, right? If, if you invest in this and say, hey, I'm going to care about these people, I'm going to make this church my family and my home, you're going to find community. That's how, again, we live like who we have become in Christ. That's your calling. That's what we need to do, but here's how you pull it off. And this last point is super important. You can't miss this because those were the what's, and here's now the why, uh, or specifically why and how is this even possible. This is point three. Rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. Walking in a manner worthy of your calling, yes, I'm all in. Sign me up. It sounds awesome. All right, now you have to be humble. You have to be gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Whoa, whoa, all right. A little bit harder than I thought it was. Not as easy as it sounds. How do you pull this off? It's resting in the grace of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Jesus Christ, along with saving you, he gave you a gift of grace. He piles it on more and more and more grace. He didn't just save you and give you this calling and say, hey, here's your lifestyle now. This is your identity now. Go do it. No, he gave you grace. He gave you a gift to go along with that. It's like a slipstream where air just flows around you. It's like this pillow that you can rest your head on. Part of your beloved identity is you have been given grace to go along with your gifting. You shouldn't feel like you're striving all the time. This isn't a gr gritted out, just grip things on tightly, hold on tight, and just hope you can survive. No, 
our God is a God of grace, and he has given you grace for his calling. Worship team, you can come on up right now. In verse 8, Paul is actually quoting there Psalm 68, verse 18. And it's what he's doing when he talks about Jesus Christ descending into the world before he ascended back up into heaven. He's actually talking about the exact same thing we saw in Philippians chapter 2. It's the same thing. Jesus Christ humbled himself. He was he, was, he is God. He, he did not take equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became a servant. He came down to this dirty, sin-cursed world, and he's, he gave his life for you. He gave his life for me. He shed his blood for us so that we could have a relationship with God and so that we could be who he created us to be. That's amazing. When he ascended, he left us gifts of grace. We're going to see more about this next week, but every time you use your spiritual gift, you are pointing to the victory of Jesus Christ. You're pointing to what he has done, who he has made you to be. And we cannot do this on our own. Can't stress that enough. We've seen it every week, basically. Be strengthened in, the, in your inner being by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is resting on the grace of Jesus Christ. Make this part of your identity. I can't figure it all out. I can't solve every problem right now. But you know what? I can love people. I can be gentle with the appropriate amount of truth at the appropriate time. I can bear hug some people, bear with them in love. You have grace to do that. We can't solve everything. We can't. We can't fix all the world's problems overnight, but you can do what God has called you to do, and you can live your life the way Jesus Christ has called you to live your life. You can be who he has called you to be. And when we speak gentleness, when we're patient, when we're humble, when we bear with one another in love, what are we doing? We're showing the attributes of God, right? Which means we are glorifying God because we're showing the truth of who he is. And we do that by grace. It's a grace walk. You are who God says you are. Put all of that pressure, all of those things that you want to fix on God. He's the way maker. He's the miracle worker. And he's going to use you when you rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's stand up. We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing one more song today. Father in heaven, it is so great to see your truth, to see who you've made us to be, see how you've changed us and equipped us and gifted us and loved us. God, may we not grit our teeth anymore and try to pull off stuff that's just beyond us, but may we rest in your grace. May we strive to love others as you have loved us eager to maintain unity, remembering where our unity comes from. It comes from your trinity. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Jesus' love. 